Hey, you are listening to the Missio Day School of Theology podcast. My name is Johnny Morrison. I'm one of the pastors here. I want to thank you for listening to this class that we did on how to read your Bible. For more information about the Bible, information about the church, or ways to get connected, check out our website at missioslc.com. Jesus, thank you so much that you are um, present to us in this moment, even as we are uh, separated by states and separated by digital barriers, that your spirit unites us, uh, calls us one, and is forming us into the people of you. God, as we look at the book of Revelations, would we see images of you that expand our imagination, that lead us into deeper trust, that lead us into a life of faithful witness and following you? So God, guide our time, help us to be attentive, help us to see you. Your wonderful name we pray. Amen. Amen. Um, so just as a quick introduction, we've been talking about Dr. Gorman for, uh, uh, what is it, the last like seven weeks or so as we've been working through the book of Revelation. We've quoted him quite a bit on Sunday. Uh, we've had his book floating around the building, reading Revelation responsibly. Uh, my first interaction, Dr. Gorman, with you was, uh, I took a class by Dennis Edwards, Dr. Dennis Edwards at Northern Seminary. And we read um, your book on kenosis and justification. And I, I don't mean to be dramatic. I do think that was one of the most like, life-changing books and classes that I've taken in terms of my understanding of justification and theology. And then from there, I read Dr. Gorman's book on Paul and mission, and then found uh, reading Revelation responsibly because a handful of other scholars that I respect quite a bit said it was by far the best book on Revelation. I think David Fitch had said that, Scott McKnight had said something very similar. Um, and uh, that has been my experience as well. It has been so helpful as a guide and as an aid in working through the book of Revelation uh, and also really inspiring to read it in a way that is like devotional, not just educational, that serves both functions. So um, yeah, uh, Dr. Gorman's a New Testament professor, um, scholar, and deep influence on Missio, even though he is, this is his first time here. So Dr. Gorman, thank you so much for being with us. Thanks for the invitation. I'm um, delighted to be with you and, and honored that you would invite me and, and that you would um, find the book useful and happy to, happy to be part of this conversation. Yeah, thank you. Um, so let's just jump right in. Um, Lydia, I think you have the first question that you wanted to ask. Yeah. So this is kind of a big question, but I felt like it's kind of an important one because it kind of sets, I feel like it sort of sets the tone for the whole book. Um, but if you had to pick one, what would you say is the biggest misunderstanding of the book of Revelation? And kind of like a follow-up question to that, what would you say is sort of the impact or the religious fallout uh, as a result of that misunderstanding? If that makes sense. Sure. I, that's an easy question to answer, although it's, it's complicated, but I think it's, for me, pretty straightforward. The biggest misunderstanding is to understand a kind of correspondence between details in the book of Revelation and alleged details in the contemporary world or in the, in the pretty imminent future. And this is often referred to as a literal re reading of Revelation, but it's not very literal. And I'll give you an example of why it's not literal. Um, in, for instance, the description of uh, the sort of big locusts in um, chapter six 
it's it's often thought or often interpreted to be some sort of flying device like a helicopter. Um, well, if you really were reading Revelation quote unquote literally, you would simply think these were big locusts rather than having an interpretation that would ground them in the understanding of the writer and the original readers. Instead, we make this giant leap into some contemporary thing that looks or sounds like a giant locust. It's not literal, it's still symbolic, but it's symbolic of the wrong time and the wrong thing. That, that pervades many people's reading of Revelation and the result, and this is where it gets spiritually, I think, significant and, and serious, is people are, instead of reading the book of Revelation as an unveiling of, of evil, uh, it, it reads Revelation as a prediction of future, allegedly future evil things, which rather than standing up against the interpretation, in, often is a call to read the signs of the time, warn people about the signs of the time, and simply um, go into a kind of spiritual hibernation where your basic purpose is to avoid the world and, uh, and get ready for the rapture or get ready for the second coming or whatever. Now, I believe in the second coming of Jesus, don't get me wrong, but I believe the second coming of Jesus compels us to live in a certain way that's not simply avoiding, um, avoiding the world. So I could say a lot more about that, but I think that's the, the basic problem in, in the way most people read, read Revelation, unfortunately. It's often, yes. if I can just add to that real quick, it's yes. often been said that that kind of reading began, well, in some ways that kind of reading has been around for almost 2000 years. But the particular way that it gets, it plays out today, some people have said it began in England in the 19th century, got exported or imported into the US and then exported all the way around the world. So if you go to South America, you go to Asia, you go to Africa, you even go to Russia, if you turn it, tune into your local Christian TV station or radio station and they're talking about revelation, 99 times out of 100, it's going to be that kind of interpretation. I, Dr. Berman, I've heard, uh, and you can correct this if this is not right, that that kind of interpretation, or, or maybe I should say that the like Tim LaHaye left behind interpretation as the dominant form is a bit of a recent development in church history. Is that true or... Yes and no. I mean, I, I would say yes, the Tim LaHaye type approach, that that particular kind of dispensational approach is less than 200 years old. If you consider that recent, which I do, compared to 2,000 years of church history, yes, I would say that's recent and it's become dominant and prominent in the last 100 years, approximately, since the Schofield Bible, which came out in the early 20th century, um, the work of some others about the same time that made that reading very popular, 
And then of course, in the 60s, it was Hal Lindsey. And then the 90s, it was Tim LaHaye and lots of other people. But those are the big influencers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, <clears throat> I mean, that's for sure. I think about the very first eschatology class <clears throat> that I took in Bible college. That was the approach that we took to that, to studying the book of Revelation, which is what does these things correspond to? Um, what do they tell us about the future? And then the primary debates were around um, like at what moment in those correspondence does Jesus return? Uh, right. Felt like the, and that was the framework that I was given at an academic level that then had to take a pretty slow work through. So in light of that being such a dominant, like reading paradigm, this is another big question, but how should we, what is the new, what is a different framework to use when we're approaching the book of Revelation? Yeah. Well, I guess I should preface this by saying the framework that you find in my book is distinctive, but not idiosyncratic. In other words, uh, I, I said this recently to another church group. If you found 500 of my best friends in the field of New Testament studies who are scholars, 500 of them would have more or less the same approach that you find in my book. And by more or less, I mean, and this answers your, will answer your question, that, uh, or maybe 499, <laughs> uh, one outlier. That is to say, that the, the approach that I think most biblical scholars want to take today is, first of all, to try to read the book of Revelation as what it presents itself to be, namely a, pro, a word of prophecy to the churches of that time in, in what is now Turkey, Western Asia, Asia in the province of Asia, Roman province, um, that reads it as a, a message to them in this particular unusual clothing of apocalyptic literature and to interpret it in light of the way apocalyptic literature functioned in the first century. Symbolism meant to unveil truth and reality and to propel people to remain faithful in the midst of that kind of evil reality that's unveiled um, and also to unveil Yes, uh, the present un unseen things and future un unseen things, but com we'll come back to that. There is a future dimension to, to Revelation and apocalyptic literature. It's just very different from the future that many people understand it to point to. Um, and that's the sort of the first step, if you will. And then the second step in the dance, if you want to call it that, is to hear that as a theological, spiritual, and even political message for us and missional message for us today that, that corresponds not to particular predictions, but to particular ways of being Christian, to be faithful, non-violently faithful in the, in the midst of this kind of evil that surrounds us, that, that, that Revelation describes as in terms of beasts and harlots and evil cities and so forth. Um, I, I think I mentioned this in the book, but I'm not sure. I often say to my students and to other groups, think of it this way. If in 
500 years from now, you know, Western civilization is destroyed and some future group finds a, a Washington Post newspaper from the year 2020. And it has, um, they find political cartoons in the newspaper. And one of the cartoons has a donkey talking to an elephant. The absolute wrong conclusion to come up with would be, boy, back in the 21st century, they had talking donkeys and talking elephants. Uh, that's the absolute complete misinterpretation of a political cartoon. Well, that's what we've done to the book of Revelation. We have totally missed what the donkey and the Republican meant in the 21st century and took it literally in some other way. Um, so, yeah, it's. Do you I have. Think, uh, I think sometimes Christians are afraid of symbolism because they think, wow, I'm not taking the Bible seriously. Sometimes we have to take the Bible's symbolism seriously in order to take the Bible seriously. Sorry, Lydia, go ahead. I was going to say this feels like a good point. I don't have it actually in my list of questions, but. Um, I just feel like so much misunderstanding and when we read the Bible, I feel like a lot of it would be cleared up if we had a better, if people had a better understanding of what genre they were reading. And I feel like apocalyptic genres are a big ask of your average churchgoer to wrap their head around because we just don't, we don't have a lot of apocalyptic literature. At least we're not aware of it when we're encountering it today. So I was curious if you had a good handy kind of working definition of what what an apocalypse is or what an apocalyptic genre is supposed to do. Sure. That might be helpful. So apocalyptic literature is symbolic literature. It uses symbolism in order to do what the verb apocalypto means, to unveil. So what is it unveiling? It is unveiling unseen or ununderstood realities in the present and unseen or impossible to see realities in the future. So it's, it's an unveiling. Those realities are not predictions as much as they are um, uh, disclosures. And the difference would be a prediction is saying, well, there was an oil spill in the, off the Gulf Coast of New Orleans 25 years ago that must correspond to the blood in the sea or something like that in the book of Revelation. A disclosure on the other hand um, says an image, let's take the, the beast in, in uh, chapter, the beast plural in chapter 13. Um, the, the symbolic language, I know you haven't gotten to that in your preaching yet, but the symbolic language there unveils the reality that political power, namely the first beast, is often supported by the propaganda of religious power, the second beast. That's not about the United Nations and the Vatican coming together in the, in the you know, 21st century. It's about the reality of Roman political power being undergirded by Roman religious power and about the reality that that's been true since the beginning of time and is true today. And our job as Christians is to identify it 
resist it and come up with a different way of being human and being and being together in community. Um, so apocalyptic has that unveiling function both historically and also con contemporaneously. Uh, so I think that's that's one way of defining apocalyptic literature. It was very common in the in the first century and in the time before and after Jesus. It's also I, the, the illustration I sometimes use with students, and I mentioned this already. Um, think of Revelation as a series of political cartoons mixed with a series of impressionistic art paintings. So if you know the impressionists, they like to grab your attention and and pull you into the, you know, Monet and Monet and the, those, I used to be a French teacher. My wife was a French teacher. Um, so we're kind of into French culture, but the impressionists don't, don't paint realistically. They paint with imagination to bring us, to draw us into that reality. So I think political cartoons and impressionistic art are good ways of thinking from things we do know about things we might not know very well. I hope that helps. Yeah, yeah, it does. Um, sort of my next question is kind of goes with that. So I know that we're not supposed to be approaching it in that sort of code breaking way. I know that you re reiterate that a lot in your book. Um, but what if you are like kind of like me and you have that sort of like, I want to just geek out on like the historical cultural context of the time, like, and you want a resource that would be like, why are, you know, why did they choose this image? What did it mean, you know, thinking about like the throne room and how that was supposed to resemble, you know, the Roman empire, like those types of settings, like what would be a good source to just be like, not to necessarily like go through and be like, this equals this, but just to give you sort of, you know, there is cultural context with these things. So yeah. it's, and they are helpful. So I don't know if you had like sort of a go-to resource if everyone's just like, I got to know what this means. <laughs> well, the, the first go-to resource is something called the Bible <laughs> and specifically the Old Testament. Lydia, you said you're an Old Testament person. And seriously, most of Revelation, even though it doesn't quote scripture, most of Revelation fuses together um, Ezekiel and Daniel and other Exodus, uh, lots of other prophetic and, and other works in the, in the Bible. So if you think of Revelation on the one hand as a kind of running reinterpretation of and mixture together of these of some of these key uh, images, that's a that's a good starting place. And and I don't I don't mean that lightly. I'm not trying to dismiss your question at all. But in terms of secondary resources to point us to what these cultural allusions, scholars sometimes refer to them as the the cultural encyclopedia. What's when, when you hear a word or see an image in the first century, what comes to mind? Um, the best place to start probably for the book of Revelation is a good commentary that can bring some of those resources to bear because there are, there are so many, not only in scripture, but also in non-scriptural or, or pseudo, you know, Jewish writings of the time. But there's other things as well. There's allusions like you know from reading Revelation two and three, there's allusions to the cities and their history and their cultural realities. Um, 
So depending on one's interest and one's availability, the availability of resources, um, a commentary uh, is, is, is probably the best way to go because there's so many, there's so many things that work here. And I can't, I can't say just, just go read X book that says un, unveiling revelation. You know, there, There are lots of books like mine that try to do that in, in small ways, but if you want all the details, you have to go to bigger commentaries. Yeah, I would, I would recommend reading Revelation responsibly though. I don't know if anybody's heard of it, but it's pretty helpful. But yeah, and, but it's deliberately, thank you, Johnny, for recommending that book. I, I, I haven't read it in a while, but I, I think it's pretty good. Um, but I, I do think that uh, the book, I deliberately wrote that book that would be um, a starter, a, a primer, if you will, to get people to read in more depth if they, if they wanted to. Uh, yeah. Um, I, I'm going to ask, I'm going to ask an additional question, but while I do, everybody, if you would like to um, just begin to ask some questions in the chat. You're more than welcome to, and then we can go to those questions. Um, so I want to give everybody just a second to like start doing that while I ask um, another question. People can start submitting theirs in the chat for us to see. Um, Dr. Carmen, kind of as you work through the book of Revelation, there are moments in the book that are hard i think for me and um what i heard from the community sometimes hard to reconcile with the way we see jesus in the gospels um and i think like sometimes like we i think about uh the moment of jesus on the white horse and that moment feels complicated you see like the judgment moments that seem kind of complicated and this is a place where I found your work to be very, very helpful is in kind of reconciling, it's helping us find that those images are not in contradiction with one another, that they're continuing the same movement, that the God revealed that Jesus is still ruling and reigning in the book of Revelation. But can you help us think through how to do that? What's going on in those moments? Yeah. Well, um, a couple of things come to mind. When I, I, I say this in the beginning of the book, I, I had the privilege when I was a, a doctoral student of being the teaching assistant for a, a great biblical scholar named Bruce Metzger at Princeton Theological Seminary. And I, I was able to take the course on Revelation with him when I was, I think, a first year, maybe a second year seminarian, and then uh, to help him teach it as a doctoral student. One of the things he often said in the, in the first lecture for that course was the book of Revelation tells us the same things that we find in the rest of the New Testament, only in a different idiom or a different language. So I think that I think that's a really good starting point. And one of the reasons that's a good starting point is because we do find pictures of Jesus in the New Testament as judge. We, we did, the creed says he's coming to judge the living and the dead. We didn't make that up as the church. It's straight out of the entire New Testament from Matthew to Revelation, right? So um, if we start with the premise that the book of Revelation as canonical literature 
tells about the same Jesus we find in the rest of the New Testament, but in a different kind of language. I think that's a helpful premise and one with which I would agree. Um, at the same time, we have to remember that apocalyptic literature, as I say in the book, is or all prophetic literature, is meant to shock. It's meant in part to shock. Um, it was Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel who said to the prophet, to the ordinary person, evil is, is ordinary and we get used to it and we get numb to it. But to the prophet, it's, it's just horrific. And the prophet's role is to awaken us to the horrible in the world as well as the beautiful in the world. So we we live in this flat universe, and the prophet lives in this, you know, highs and lows in in megaphone uh, way of of living. And so, uh, some of the images that appear in the Book of Revelation um, are so dramatic that and and intense that they seemed, as you hinted at, Johnny, to be sort of, um, if you will, contradictory. So I, th I think we have to begin with the premise that we're going to find the Jesus of the New Testament in the book of Revelation. But also, within the book of Revelation, we have to find the right starting place. And I know you were preaching on Revelation 4 today. Let me just say at the moment, I did have a chance to, I think I told you in an email, I had a chance to listen to your very first message on Revelation, the starter message, which I thought was great. So kudos to you. And I think the church is in good hands, <laughs> uh, at least on Revelation. I don't know about anything else. Um, That's fair. <laughs> but um, if you start with the white horse and say, wow, you've got this, what well, looks like a violent Jesus, um, who's going to come in as Tim LaHaye and Jerry Jenkins would say, wrestle up his literal armed forces and, and supply them all with Uzis so they can take out literally all the enemies. Um, if instead we begin with what I'm, as I think you will say next week, the centering this week and next week, the central and the centering vision of Revelation, which is the Lamb of God who was slain four times, seven times, Jesus is, just, is depicted as the Lamb. Why four times seven? 28, 28 times. Four, universal, seven, complete, whole, both biblical numbers. Uh, it, it, Jesus is the Lamb who was slain and is now standing. He's the res resurrected, crucified one. And his life, death, and especially faithful witness in that life and death, that's, that's the central image of the book of Revelation. And that's the, that's the Christ that we worship. If we start with the worship in chapters four and five, other things I think begin to fall into place. And we discover that the Jesus of chapter 19, not to feed your sermon, you know, 10 weeks in advance or five weeks in advance or whatever, but the, the, the Jesus we find in chapter 19 is the word of God who as word can speak just like God spoke creation into existence by the word of God, the word of God, Jesus can speak evil out of existence. It, it doesn't use a literal sword. 
He uses the sword of his mouth. He uses the sword of the gospel, the power of his, of his own existence as the word of God. And so again, to go back to kind of Old Testament allusions and so forth, um, we need to, to hear echoes of the creation out of, out of nothing with the word. Uh, we need to hear the presence of the blood imagery throughout the book of Revelation as symbolizing martyrdom, the first the martyrdom of Jesus, and then the martyrdom of, of uh, his saints. And so, I mean, there's, um, there's a way in which where you start is going to determine where you end. And if you don't start with the central image, you're going to have problems. Yeah, that's super helpful. Uh, that's a really helpful way of framing it. And I mean, help like is as you said, like a helpful way of framing how we read all of scripture is through the person of Jesus. And so we apply, like you said, Revelation is the rest of the book also. And so as we apply the rules to Revelation, we also apply them everywhere else. The same rules that we apply everywhere else, we're trying to apply here also. And even the first few words of the book in Greek says the the revelation of Jesus Christ. Hmm. So that's why I say in the book, um, the main emphasis or focus of the book of Revelation is not the Antichrist, but the living Christ. This is, this is the unveiling of who Christ is and what his um, uh, will for the world is. I often say as well, um, where you start is where you end up. If you start in terms of the final chapters of Revelation 21 and 22 as also being the finale for the New Testament, the finale for the whole Bible, we know that God is moving from creation to new creation. And the ultimate goal is to get to this new creation. As Paul says a couple of times, that new creation has already begun. And we're living in that new creation in a, in a proleptic and in, in an anticipatory sense now. Oh, that's good. Um, okay, so we have a few questions coming in. Uh, this one I got in direct um, from Max. Uh, here's the question, Dr. Gorman, you open your book with a lot of examples of very smart people who have either completely ignored Revelation or outright hate it. Uh, how does reading a text that has a, such a reputation inform the way you analyze it? That's a great question. I don't think I've ever been asked that before. And I've probably spoken about the book of Revelation a hundred times. Good work, Max. Uh, I... I think as a scholar, I tend to be suspicious of suspicious readings of biblical texts. Um, and that's because I believe in original sin uh, or whatever you want to call it. Um, and so I think I'm drawn to Revelation in part because it has been so is both misunderstood and as Matt said, um, so hated. Uh, Luther, for instance, especially early in his career said that the problem with Revelation is it doesn't preach Christ. Well, he said the same thing about Hebrews. He said the same thing about James um, or the same kind, same kind of thing. 
So as a, as a scholar, as I said, as, as a theological scholar, I'm suspicious of a hermeneutic of suspicion because of our sinful tendencies to misunderstand, misread, misinterpret, misapply um, scripture. And that I turn that in on myself too. I wanna be careful that I don't put myself out there as the, as the know-it-all or the person who's got all the answers. So um, I think it does influence, and, and, and I think also in a kind of reactionary way, I mean, uh, I don't tell this story in the book. I didn't go back and read the first chapter. I, I did glance over it, but I didn't, I don't think I tell the story in the book. When I was in college, I had a, back in the day when you, dorms had resident assistants. You had somebody kind of looking out for you, allegedly. Well, the resident assistant when I was a freshman was a very um, unusual Christian young man who, who lived a survivalist, um, had a survivalist approach, fearing that the end was coming soon and that he had to be ready for it. So he would go out on the weekends and do survivalist camping on our on our college property. And he would come back occasionally and he would air out his bright neon orange pup tent in the middle of his dorm room. So as a college freshman, I was I had already heard some of this kind of stuff through Hal Lindsey when I was in high school youth group. I was scared out of my mind. I actually literally developed an ulcer and contemplated suicide um, as a result of this influence. I I had a real spiritual crisis my first year in, in college as a result of this. So I'm sure I'm reacting to that in part or that kind of thing. Uh, I, I appreciate the answer, Dr. Corman, both uh, just the humility in terms of self-reflection and you telling you that story. Um, we have a, a, a question slash statement here. Ken, I don't know if you would like to provide any additional context uh, or if you would just like me to read it. I just wasn't sure what the ask in this uh, question was. I wanted to make sure we got it right. Yeah, I think just read it and then if there's questions, okay, I'll try I, I can, and answer. I can see it in chat. Oh, great. Yes. Well, there is some debate among... New Testament scholars as to how much the Roman imperial cult influenced Paul and the gospel writers and so forth. But there's almost no debate among scholars about how much it influenced the book of Revelation. So the imperial cult in a nutshell was a, it was actually, you can almost pluralize it and say cults plural. The imperial cult was a combination of what we would call today uh, maybe political ideology or even nationalism and religious fervor in a way that highly emphasized the emperor as either a god or an appointed godlike figure and the empire, the Roman Empire, as the gift of God to the emperor and to the citizens uh, for which in return, they needed to pay him worship and obedience. The result was 
throughout the empire and especially in Western Turkey in the first late first century, there were statues and temples and games built or created to honor the emperor. Um, and this kind of honor was expected of everybody, but especially expected, expected of those in any position of power. So as I say in the book, it's kind of a God and country phenomenon, impossible to separate politics and religion in the ancient world, and especially in this context of Roman Empire. And as I mentioned, talking about Romans 13, I mean, Revelation 13, you have uh, this huge devotion to the em emperor as a political figure, inseparable from literal worship and literal devotion that was uh, up, upheld by a series of priests in, a, in an imperial priesthood. So the, the parallel generally, I would say, is the, is the merger of politics and religion in a way that um, is allegedly to the benefit of both, the mutual benefit of each, by ascribing sacred character to secular power and giving secular support to sacred institutions or realities or whatever. And this plays out in all kinds of ways. I've already mentioned games, temples, <clears throat> incense burning, sacrificial meals, parties, you name it, any, any way you can have a religious, political, or social event, it could be, and often was, dedicated to the emperor. And by extension to the empire. The American context obviously has some differences. One of the main differences being that the American context has been influenced by Christianity. So now, rather than having kind of pagan religion supporting politics and politics supporting pagan religiosity and so forth, you have the mixture in the contemporary American context, primarily, at least allegedly, of some form of Christianity and American economic, military, and political power. And it plays out, and if anybody's read the book or looked at the book, I have a whole chapter devoted to how this plays out in the American context. Everything from the Pledge of Allegiance in church to pictures of Jesus holding an American flag or um, uh, the, the way in which we have um, hyper patriotic slash nationalistic understandings of Christian worship songs and hymns and even scripture readings. A friend of mine just came back from a trip down south and he went to a museum in which there was there were scriptural quotations in this museum, and they were all associated with different aspects of American life and American power. So that, for instance, and I'll give you the most egregious example. There was a, a picture of a, um, an American soldier, armed soldier, uh, going to battle, 
And the scripture text under it was the quotation from Luke 4, where Jesus says, um, quoting Isaiah 61, that he's come to liberate the oppressed. When you, when you apply that kind of text to American military might, you're not just misinterpreting scripture, you're, 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 uh, you're engaging in a form of blasphemy and idolatry. So ultimately, this blending of American, as I said, power and, and Christian Christianity in some form, I call it Christianity light often, is Rome redone, but in a new key. And it's more dangerous now because it allegedly has Christianity within it and behind it. And I, I'm, I would have to say, in all honesty, the most egregious display of this was on January the 6th. Um, whatever you feel about political realities, even about elections, the merger of um, violent attacks with images of Jesus and crosses and so forth is, is unfortunately one of the manifestations of this. Um, so there are differences, but there are similarities. Thanks, very helpful. Um, I kind of had, that was actually a perfect question, Ken, because that was kind of exactly what I was going to ask. But just to kind of maybe ask one like further question is, you know, I feel like there's a lot of people I know personally that would totally get the, the problem with mixing the secular and the sacred in the Roman Empire, um, but would really have a hard time seeing kind of what you describe, you know, this in the American context. Uh, and I think their question would be like, you know, but what's wrong with being a Christian nation? And like, what is our job as Christians to bring God's, you know, kingdom on earth? Like, what does that look like? I feel like this would just kind of like be so disorienting to them. So what if that's like, you know, January 6th is like a negative picture, then what do you, how do you live your life as a Christian? And this is the you know question, you know, that you asked basically in the book about being a faithful witness. What is it supposed to look like? Um, if that's the bad, <laughs> don't do that. January 6th, yeah. no. What does it look like to be in a part of culture, but not um, in culture, but not a part of culture? Yeah, I mean, I think we have to, I think a good place to start is with the vision of, of revelation of the church, which is people from every tribe, nation, ethnicity, and so forth. I mean, the, a fundamental starting point for us as Christians needs to be that the church really has absolutely nothing to do with the nation state called the United States of America. I mean, when I say has nothing to do with it, God's will, God's plan is um, irrespective of any nation. It's not, no nation, not the United States, not Haiti, not Germany, not Russia. None of those places have anything as, as political entities, none of them have anything to do with the kingdom of God. God doesn't operate through them, but in spite of them. That's a fundamental starting point. Um, at the same time, God brings people from all those nations together in, in the church, and that will be what heaven on earth looks like, according to Revelation 21 and 22. So I would say the, the appropriate starting point is to give up on the idea of a Christian America or trying to bring that's been a problem since the beginning of time, U.S. time, that is. Um, 
one of the textbooks I had in my first church history class in seminary was called A Christian America, which was a history of the attempt of the church to make America Christian. The, the, the goal of the church is not to make America Christian. The goal of the church is to evangelize the world. We happen to be located in the United States of America, but our goal is not to Christianize America. The idea, in my opinion, the idea of a Christian nation is pretty much of an oxymoron anyhow. Nations are mostly about power. They employ economic, military, and political power to get their will done. My most eye-opening moment in college, and I was a French major with a Bible minor in college, my most eye-opening moment was the first day of political science class, international relations. I never learned this as a teenager or as a high school student. First words out of the lecturer's mouth were, the purpose of, the purpose of political entities is to further national self-interest. And I thought, of course it is. And then I thought, well, that's about as unchristian as you can get. I had those two apocalyptic moments simultaneously in my first semester of college in my first political science, my only political science class, international relations. Um, so uh, are, we to, are we to live in this country in a way that bears witness to the gospel? Yes. Can we have a voice in political affairs in, in a Christian way? We can, um, but that's not our primary goal. And that's, that's, a fundamental, that's a fundamental dividing line. Is your primary goal as a Christian to try to allegedly Christianize the United States and, and bring it back to God? Or is your goal to represent the universal mission of God that you happen to have a part of here in this country. Hey Amen. That's really good. Uh, uh, Max, I think I saw you put your hand up during that question. So I'm imagining it's uh, probably somewhat connected. I did. Yeah. Thank you. Um, Dr. Gorman. Yeah. I, I guess uh, just to kind of build on that same um, question of like, we have pretty clear examples of bad ways to participate in culture and we're looking for good ways. And, and I think the phrase that you use in your book was trying to discern not just what's of the culture, but what is anti-lamb. Um, and I was wondering if you had thoughts on like practices, um, whether individual or like as a church um, that we could engage in to like do that discernment. Yeah. Well, unfortunately the, the negative and the positive go hand in hand. So um, if we're going to move away from, say, and I'm not, I don't know that Missio well enough to say anything about people or the church or whatever, um, and I've looked at the website, so, but if we're going to move away from or not embrace certain um, nationalistic practices, what are their alternatives? Well, um, my friend Shane Claiborne likes to talk about Interdependence Day on the 4th of July. You know, what if the church held an interdependence celebration event? And that could be a community service event, or it could be celebrating the church as the body of Christ and um, in some creative way. If we're not going to buy into the gun violence of our culture, what can we do instead? Well, um, a very dramatic thing to do would be to be part of a, a, a 
buyback of, of guns in the in the city or the community, you know, if churches band together with the police department to do that. I mean, there's, the, the, those are, the first thing I mentioned is pretty easy. The second one's a little more demanding. Um, but the, the, I think the basic answer is, is trying to be a community of grace and peace and, and reconciliation. I mean, if, if the goal of the church is to be, um, by goal, I mean the, the eschatological goal of the church is to be um, multicultural and multinational, then it seems to me that that's a goal that we ought to be working toward as local churches. Um, that's a tough goal sometimes in, 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 in the Protestant world. Um, we tend to we tend to tribalize, um, you know. So I think the vision of the book of Revelation, it's ecclesiology, a community of worship, of, of cultural plurality, of faithful witness, of peacemaking. I think every church has to discern what that means in their context, but it, that provides a, a kind of theological framework so Max, I, I can't get real specific for your context, but I'm hopeful that that might generate some thinking on your part. Yeah, no, of, of, of course. Yeah, thank you so much. Yeah, can I, answer, can I, can I quickly answer the question in here uh, about Paul seeming to be indifferent to food sacrifice to idol? Yeah, that'd be great. That's I, perfect, yeah. perfect. Um, I don't, this is not criticism of the person who posed the question, but I think it's a total, total misreading of Paul. Um, and you can read my book on, uh, my big fat book on Paul to, to find a better reading of that. But I think Paul is not at all indifferent. He, he begins in, in chapter 8 of 1 Corinthians by telling the church, the first thing they ought to look at is, how does this? How does your practice of of eating in the idol temples um, affect other believers? It might cause them to go back into idolatry and lose their faith, their salvation. Then, after he gives himself as an example of of giving up rights for the sake of others, in chapter ten, he makes it very clear that Jesus is an exclusive cult. You can't worship Jesus and participate in other idolatry. Uh, so you, he does not approve of going back to the temples and eating the sacrificial meat there. The meat is not the problem. It's the environment of idolatry that's the problem. So it, when you're in somebody's home, you can eat any meat you want until the person says, hey, this is meat that was sacrificed to you know, Asclepius. And then you say, for their sake, sorry, I can't eat that. Not because it's meat but because it's associated with idolatry. So you can't, chapter 10 of, of 1 Corinthians makes it clear, you can't have communion with Jesus and with the one bread and one body and have communion with, uh, with idols who don't exist, but, but their cults are um, infected with demons. That's a, that's a question I get at almost every talk on Revelation who's, of someone who's read carefully both Revelation and Paul. So kudos back to uh, K. Timbo for a good reading, a wrong reading, but a good reading. 
That's not the uh, first time. It's not the first time. So. A careful, a careful reading. Yeah, thank you for asking that, Ken. Um, we appreciate it. you saved me from doing it. So, um, we one of the last questions here. We're pretty close to one thirty, yeah. so I think this is maybe a good place to even start to wrap this up. Um, Gabe and Dorothy asked. Um, why do you think the predictive take on Revelation is still so popular and often undisputed? It's so popular because Bible teachers, so-called, have uh, control of the airwaves and the social media. Um, by control, I mean they have financial support and uh, poor scholars don't generally have that, that venue, so they don't have that level of influence. So it's really up to pastors who hopefully are influenced by, by good scholarship to undo the, the people that have all the influence. Um, and I think ultimately it's popular and, and, and so forth undisputed because it does, to use biblical language, tickle people's ears, makes them fascinated with a book and with what they think is um, God's plan, God's whatever. Um, and unfortunately, I think that they're very, very mis misled. And I don't blame it on the people, I blame it on the teachers. So, but it does, it does appeal. I mean, you kind of, it's, it's almost Gnostic, you know, you have this, you have the secret code into what's going to happen when the United Nations and the Vatican get together. So. Yeah. I think it's also kind of like a, a little bit fueled by fear. I mean, when you're like afraid of something, one of the reactions, like natural reactions, it's just like, you know, toss any kind of explanation to it, whether it's wrong or right. And at least it gives you a measure, at least of an illusion of control over control. it. Yeah, no, that's a good point, Lydia. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it kind of sounds like David was saying, like other conspiracy theories, same kind of idea. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you're right. It is a kind of subgroup of, of conspiracy theories. Yeah, that interpretation. Yeah. Um, great. Well, I think I think that hits every major question that's been asked, and the ones that Lydia and I prepared. And we are at one twenty-nine. Can you hear you, so. We lost your audio. Oh, there we go. Now we can. You're back. Oh, oh, I see. My it says my internet connection was a little bit unstable. Sorry about that. Um, I was just saying that we are at one thirty. Um, we've hit every question that people ask, and the questions that Lydia and I. Uh, Prepare. It's a good work, like right on time. Um, I uh, that's all I have for Dr. Gorman. I I wanted to just hand it to you to see if there's anything else that we missed or that you wanted to cover. You can take it away. Otherwise, we'll uh, thank you for being with us. And no, I th I think we um, we had a good conversation. At least I I enjoyed it. So yeah, yeah. Thank Dr. Gorman. Thank you so much for being here. I know. Um, yeah, everyone is. Uh, Thankful that you're here. People were very excited about having you uh, join our our conversation for the bit. Um, my, so my, only, so my only last word would be: I'd love to see everybody's face for at least for thirty seconds. <laughs> <laughs>
know who I was talking to. Or somebody's face. <laughs> just like a few. What's up, everybody? All right. Whoa, Andrew. Good. Especially the people who raised the good questions. Well, all the best to you in your in your church. Uh, I I appreciate the fact that you're taking this book seriously and creatively, and um, hopefully it will be spiritually renewing and helpful. So, by this book, I mean the Book of Revelation. <laughs> well, your book has also been very helpful and uh, refreshing. So, um, Dr. Gorman, thank you so much. Uh, Lydia, would you pray us out and send Dr. Gorman with a blessing, and then we'll close. Sure. Father, we thank you for this time together. We, we thank you for people like Dr. Gorman who can help us and assist us in some pretty uh, fascinating, bizarre, and confusing, and potentially you know scary subject matter that's um, also our scripture. Uh, thank you for brilliant minds like these and also uh, just the accessibility um, in terms of the way he's communicated these things, God. And I just pray that you would help us as we, as we take in this book, um, as your church, that we would not be afraid of it, that we would be able to convey that vision of, uh, living as faithful witnesses, the way of the lamb, um, such a powerful vision and can have such huge outcomes if we could just really get the right understanding, um, of that vision. So I just pray that you would, uh, let that sink into our hearts as we continue uh, studying this book. Um, and I just pray that you would bless us and bless Dr. Gorman and his work. In your son's name we pray. Amen. 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 Thank you, Lydia. Dr. Gorman. Thank, Thank you, Johnny. Thank you. Lydia. Thanks to everybody. All the best. Yeah. Have a great Sunday. Yeah. Thank you so much, Dr. Gorman. Thanks, everybody, for being here. It's good to have you.